Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Jim Downs about the new book, Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine, a sweeping global history that looks beyond European urban centers to show how slavery, colonialism, and war propelled the development of modern medicine. The scientific knowledge derived from discarding and exploiting human life is now the basis of our ability to protect humanity from epidemics. Boldly argued and eye-opening maladies of empire gives a full account of the true price of medical progress. Well, Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, how are you? How was your week? My week was pretty good. I'm really busy. I'm in the middle of getting two articles done. So as soon as we finish this podcast, I'm back to the laptop and back to writing. Catching any sunshine? Yes, yes, there is some. There's lots of sunshine here, which has been good because we've been having a rainy Pennsylvania spring, but it's been sunny today in Pennsylvania. So it's much better. So can you tell us, what do you do? I'm a historian, and I just published a brand new book called Maladies of Empire, which is on the origins of epidemiology. And the subtitle is How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine. This is my third book, my and it's uh, really a continuation of my second, my first book, actually, um, Sick from Freedom, which was an epidemiological analysis of the health conditions of formerly enslaved people at the time of emancipation. And in that book, I uncovered a major smallpox epidemic and cholera pandemic that disseminated um, and de- devastated the free Black population. And how did you get interested in studying history? 
I got interested in studying history largely from first studying literature and in studying literature of the 19th century uh, in the United States and studying slave narratives, which were books written by uh, formerly enslaved people to chronicle their lives during enslavement, I became really interested in the question of historical context and to do a better analysis of literary sources, I turned to the archive and I began going to the National Archives in the United States to study the experience of formerly enslaved people. And I was just so sort of inspired and also surprised and um, intrigued by all of these records. And I found myself having more questions and becoming uh, really um, engaged by the stories and also really thrilled by the possibility of opening up documents, at least for the Bureau documents, the Freedmen's Bureau documents, that often hadn't been opened for 150 years. People had cataloged them and classified them as state records or commissioner records, but a lot of them hadn't been sort of looked at. So it was really exciting to do that work. Oh, wow. That sounds absolutely thrilling. Yes, it was. And so it was thrilling because it was about the idea that there was so much history about Black people in the United States that had gone unnoticed and had gone unexplored. And so going into the archive was a question of uncovering these sources. And of course, historians have lots of critiques about the politics of recovery and saying, you're the first one to find something. Some archivist knew it. And that's true for private collections. That's true for most you know, university manuscript, manuscript libraries and smaller historical societies. But when you're dealing with something like the National Archives and you're dealing with miles and miles of records, very rarely... <laughs> Are there documents that archi- that all the archivists have seen, if any? And mm-hmm. so these records, in, in fact, were collected by a wartime agency, and they were sort of um, put together at the time of the Civil War, and some of them hadn't been opened. And so that was really the focus of my first book, Sick from Freedom. But it started this project of me being like really interested in the question of medicine during the Civil War, which is a huge part of my most recent book, Maladies of Empire. And what I do in that book is say, basically say that the field of epidemiology resulted from places that we may not have realized before. Oftentimes people say, well, I think epidemiology can be traced to Jon Snow and the famous discovery of cholera at the water pump. And that is a true story that actually happened and Snow needs to be praised for his important discovery. But his method in how he developed this analysis um, and theory uh, grew out of a larger practice. And that practice is something that I uncover um, in my book and, and the ways in which the international slave trade, the expansion of the British Empire, and then the Crimean War and the Civil War created these kinds of major medical transformations that began to allow doctors to really 
witness the spread of infectious disease across large populations. Now, of course, you know, doctors had studied disease um, across populations long before 1755, which is when my book begins. But what you see is that the slave trade, the expansion of the British Empire and the Crimean and the Civil War create an enormous bureaucracy that this scale and scope of how doctors study the spread of infectious disease across large populations increases dramatically. And that increase actually leads to the development of the Epidemiological Society in London in 1850 and to a group of people who begin to actually self-identify as epidemiologists by the mid to late 19th century. And so that major medical scientific innovation is not divorced from these larger social transformations. And before we jump into the details of your book, can you tell us, so were there any mentors that really supported you along the way? And what would you say to students or people who could be interested in studying history? So I had a I had a lot of mentors um, along the way. I, I would say that one of the biggest and most important one of my biggest and most important mentors was my undergraduate mentor, uh, Farah Jasmine Griffin, who was in literary studies, and it was in her undergraduate courses that I began to really learn what the terminology of um, probing the silences and sources were. So what is a silence? And so within academic parlance and discourse today, it becomes a sort of common way of thinking about how to conduct scholarly analysis. But as a young undergraduate, that was a relatively new phenomenon. And so Farrah Griffin sort of introduced me to a ton of theoretical work written by Black women scholars in the 1980s and early 1990s that really paved the way for my intellectual uh, trajectory and really gave me a set of uh, fundamental tools to think about how to do historical research. And so she, she was a very key integral mentor earlier um, in my career. And I would say with this book, um, in general, I've been supported by lots of different people, but mostly just in terms of support um, and enthusiasm and by saying like, hey, this is what I found. What do you think? And so people like the British historian, well, he's a historian of British medicine, uh, Jacob Sear Williams, someone who's been a major interlocutor with me for many years, um, and just having conversations with him over the kind of stuff I was finding and him having the kind of scholarly um, knowledge and historiographical awareness to sort of point me in different directions. So he's younger than me intellectually. I mean, like academically, he's um, his first book just came out. He's recently tenured. He's younger than me, I guess, in human adult physical years on planet on the planet, but he's obviously like a collaborator and, and a mentor. And then of course my, you know, there's many others, Evelyn Hammonds in the history of medicine and, and science at, at Harvard, uh, Catherine Clinton at the university of Texas, San Antonio is a Southern historian. My advisor from when I was at Columbia, Eric Foner, all of these people have been instrumental in lots of different ways. What I would say to young people is 
to go to the archives. I think that this is the most important thing. I, I think a lot of times we can, historians will say, what's your question? Well, of course you can have a question. I mean, it's fine to have a question, but it really, um, sometimes the question is informed by presentist ideas or ideological concerns, and it's not necessarily rooted in what's actually in the primary material. Um, and of course you could have questions about the problems of the primary material and the political nature of the primary material. But um, the, the point is to really find a set of records, find a set of sources that you really like working with. And so interestingly enough, I really like working with military records. I really like working with government records in part because of the ways that bureaucracy creates a kind of organization and order that makes the process of historical research a lot more easy to navigate. So I think that once I'm knee deep in the sources, I then am in a better position to develop a research question or to think about a topic for a project rather than reading a bunch of books and saying, oh, based on all of the things that these people have said, I have this question. Well, yeah, you can have that question and that's fine. But sometimes it, it then leads to like a needle in the haystack. So I would say for historians to really get comfortable in that way with the records and with the archives. And then just in terms of for writers of any sort of discipline or training, I, I think this is true and it really became clear to me during the pandemic when my schedule was completely upended. Um, it's really just having a schedule and it's really just saying like, okay, I'm not going to be this person who wakes up at eight o'clock in the morning and boils a pot of coffee and works until 6 PM at night, but I'm going to dedicate the hours between three and 7 PM every day to writing and, and research and work. And I think when you, when I was able to, demarcate a specific time of day to doing the kind of work that needed to be done, I got more done. What happened during the pandemic was that I didn't have a library to go to in the middle of the afternoon. I didn't have a coffee shop to sit in. And so as a result, I, I didn't really have much of a schedule and I floundered. And so now with things starting to kind of reopen and the world returning to some semblance of normalcy, I've noticed that the return to a schedule has often been really helpful in terms of my productivity. So I would say to younger writers, um, developing some kind of schedule is really, uh, it sounds simplistic, it sounds obvious, but it really becomes an effective way to, to be productive. Oh, love it. All right, so let's delve into nitty-gritty of your book. And let's start with the very basics. So after pandemic or during the pandemic as well, many of us felt like armchair epidemiologists. Right. <laughs> perhaps not everybody knows exactly what does epidemiology study. So can you let right. us know? So epidemiology, I mean, epidemiology could be broadly defined as a way of studying the spread of infectious, the spread of, the spread of disease, and the con- and the control and prevention of it. And that's the, at least the way that I understand it um, in terms of the nineteenth century and how I use it in the nineteenth century, which is 
uh, medical professionals, and they range from doctors to nurses to even government and military official, officials, are really interested in this question of what is the cause of what of of the spread of disease. How does it um, move across a population? And then the other two major fundamental points are how do you control it? How do you stop it? And most of all, how do you prevent it? So that's a good way of thinking of what epidemiology means. And how did the earliest days of epidemiology look like? It's really interesting. So one of the things that one of the things that it looked like was lots of stories, lots of written reports narrated as stories that uh, attempted to pinpoint the cause of a particular epidemic. Often, early epidemiologists looked at the environment and they looked at the ways in which poor sanitation or uh, maybe polluted waterways or inadequate drainage led to the spread of disease. They certainly at times turned to people's personal habits and they considered that to be a contributing factor. Um, They also were less interested in the kinds of metrics that have since characterized uh, epidemiological studies today, which are mostly statistical analysis and maps. So, I mean, there's lots of ways that, so statistical analysis, one is that in the 19th century, in this time, they don't really often have, at least in the kinds of um, sources that I'm looking at the the access to the numbers of people that are getting sick and the numbers of people that are uh, dying. They're making estimates based on what they on what they encounter, and what they see is often what they report. So that doesn't actually mean that's what happened. So they may own, they may see. 10 people infected with smallpox. That doesn't mean that there were only 10 people infected with smallpox. I think, I think today in 2022, this is separate from when I did my first book 20 in 2012, I would say that and people would maybe look at me kind of surprised, not really understanding it, but think of it today. Like if we thought about COVID and the New York times CDC, a lot of people report the number of COVID infections per day, but they're not they don't represent all of the COVID infections. They only represent what the various registers out there, the state agencies are reporting back. People are doing at-home COVID tests and thereby those numbers aren't getting reported. People are infected with COVID and not necessarily taking a test. So that is clear today in 2022, it was more exaggerated in the 1850s and 1860s. So that's part of what they're saying. They're also really interested in prevention. And I think this is important because when we think about the history of medicine within the broad array, within a long period from like literally from the ancient period, from BCE down to the 1840s, the 1850s, this idea of cleanliness and this idea of engaging in very concerted efforts to promote sanitation is a relatively new phenomenon. It's not a relatively new new phenomenon, maybe for individual people or individual communities, but it's a relatively new phenomenon for the ways in which 
military powers, state powers, medical authorities begin to understand their role. So yeah, people may have understood the problems of like not defecating in the same water that you drink in 35 BCE. I get it. But the idea of having what we would understand to be a public health authority monitoring sanitary affairs is a relatively new phenomenon. And in people push back on it. And so it's it's what happens when you have war. When I talk about this in the book, the Crimean and the Civil War, there aren't departments that are created alongside of the logistical campaigns to manage sanitation. It's only when there's an explosive outbreak of dysentery or diarrhea or smallpox or another form of infection that people say, well, we really need to start thinking about sanitary measures and we really need to be be thinking about creating a you know some type of uni- unified systematic approach to prevent disease which may or may not result from sanitation because this is before the advent of microbiology and germ theory and understandings of bacteria so not everything that they're doing in terms of sanitary improvement leads to um, the mitigation of disease but it does help in lots of ways so uh, one of the things that you begin to sort of see for early epidemiologists is how they're serving as liaisons between the medical community, populations of people, and some form of state, medical, or military power, and how they're working to get those organizations to do something as simple as cleaning kitchen utensils, you know, not, you know, making sure that there's a place where bodies of dead animals or even people could be buried. So those kinds of systematic measures that are now being taken on on such a broad scale um, are, are new. So again, locally, like colonial Boston, early 19th century Paris, sure, you have these kinds of sanitation measures. But what war does, what the Civil War did and what the Crimean War did was it expanded the scale and scope of those practices and it really began to animate federal authorities national authorities military authorities larger medical bodies to begin this process of doing that kind of work and what has uh, the prevalent narrative or view of the epidemiology has been um, that perhaps public are aware of So what has been the sort of main narrative? So I would say the main narrative of public health is often the story that this is a popular narrative. This is a public health as as a sort of enterprise to call it that um, begins in the late 19th century with the rise of urbanization and how that coalesces with the rise of immigration and industrialization, it sort of begins as a phenomenon that develops mostly in municipalities. Of course, there's earlier antecedents in colonial cities and in other places, but ultimately public health as um, as a field where we actually begin to see the creation of public health offices is more of a late 19th century phenomenon. I argue that slavery created a public health crisis, that slavery actually... Um, forced uh, people, forced medical authorities, military authorities, federal authorities, state authorities to begin thinking about population health, that the, the notion of population health 
um, was not just something that developed at the end of the 19th century, but had an earlier moment within the middle of the 18th century as a result of the Atlantic slave trade. Historians of medicine could respond to me and say, yes, okay, fine, but there were people that were concerned about population health in terms of hospitals and hospitals in the mid 18th and early 19th century were not the ways that we think about hospitals today. They were basically shelters for the poor and the dispossessed. And people would say, other scholars would say, so they were thinking about population health uh, in hospitals and they were also thinking about population health sometimes um, in prisons true. But both of these were dispossessed populations that most people didn't care about. And so that while there was the work of reformers that identified things known as um, things like jail fever, which we would probably identify today as typhus, uh, it was many people kind of disregarded it because these were populations that they didn't care about to begin with. So if there was a epidemic outbreak that spread across a population, it was typically confined to those institutions. And surely there were sometimes where it would like spill out into the local village or community, but mostly people didn't care. The Crimean war all of a sudden raises this question of public health because now the British have sent their sons, their husbands, their fathers, their brothers to fight in an you know in in a, in a faraway foreign war, and they're not dying on the battlefield; they're becoming really sick within the hospitals. And so that what happens is, all of a sudden, you have like the beginning also with the, of modern journalism and of um, reports um, from the battlefield and dispatches, uh, daily dispatches that are getting published in the London Times that are describing the fact that the French and the Russians are not dying in such large numbers, but here the, the British are because of sanitation. And so then sanitation and public health grows out of like the, 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 the Crimean war it becomes like a sort of unintended consequence. It gives rise to people who I talk about in the book, like Florence Nightingale, who's a nurse, but also, as I argue in the book, like a burgeoning, uh, unrecognized epidemiologist. So then as a historian, you're saying, well, okay, well, if, if, if we look at a timeline and we say, well, we think that public health develops in the late 19th century, but actually we're, we're seeing an earlier antecedent in the 1850s with the Crimean War and the American Civil War in the 1860s. Is that really the start of it? But then as a historian, I thought, well, I'm not sure because I'm going back a little, if I go back a little further in time and I go to the mid turn of the 19th century or the mid 18th century turn of the 19th century, you're all of a sudden seeing similar discussions around sanitation and public health around enslaved people's bodies and the ways in which slave ships become these vectors of disease. So in other words, public health, the genealogy of public health isn't something that develops in the late 19th century, but it goes back as early to to the mid 19th century to the Crimea and the Civil War and then even earlier to slavery. And when it's happening, when these public health problems are happening during slavery, sure, they're happening alongside of things like the um, poor health conditions among incarcerated populations or patients in city hospitals, but no one has an economic investment in their health. People have an economic investment in enslaved people's health, even though 
they don't tend to their health that well within slave ships, they start to. And so I end chapter one in talking about how ventilators, these sort of mechanical ventilators are uh, implemented on slave ships in order to produce the circulation of air uh, so that fewer enslaved Africans died during the transport from Africa to the New World. And in that moment, I realized something really fascinating, which was that we often think of the history of science as sort of separate from the history of race and separate from the history of of Black people and separate from the history of uh, slavery. But here it was, was... persuasive, compelling evidence that new scientific technologies developed as a result of the slave trade. And when you pushed, when I pushed harder on this question of ventilation, I started to realize that the scientific community, as a result of uh, the discovery of, of, of chemistry as a brand new bona fide field of science in the 1750s, uh, started to think about oxygen oxygen as as it as a chemical element people understood people yeah everyone understood for a very long time human beings needed air to survive but the way that air changes quality based on context based on circumstances based on conditions was a scientific um idea that was debated in the 1750s by european scientists all of a sudden the slave trade comes along and shows all of these people dying at the bottom of ships because of a lack of oxygen. And so they create ventilators to promote ventilation and to promote air supply. And the reporting of what's happening on those ships then flows back to the metropole and begins to be used as evidence of the existence of oxygen. So when we think about oxygen as an element of human everyday life, it's scientific validity gains um, visibility through the transatlantic slave trade. This is truly astounding that just some of these really important contributors and all of these uh, communities have been overlooked. Like most of us probably haven't really heard about it and maybe think about epidemiology only about couple of really individuals that stand out right right and so i know that's why you know like going back to the earlier point it's like that's why i always go to this question of going to the archives and looking at the sources because i didn't discover the piece about the ventilators until i was had already submitted the manuscript the manuscript had already gone through peer review and then it had to go back through peer review because of that, <laughs> because I, it was something that I in 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 shape in sort of in sort of like fact checking and editing the first part of the chapter. It led me down a rabbit hole within the sources that led me to Stephen Hales and his treatise on slave ships and how slave ships became the. Uh, testing ground for ventilators. And so it's this material is, you know, to use the popular term, it's hiding in plain sight, but how do you get to it? I mean, you know, even, even if you, if you know the keywords, if you thought, okay, slave ship, oxygen, you know, slave ship ventilators. I mean, yes, within two seconds, Google will produce it, but who would have thought 
like to put those two keywords together. Not I. And so, but it was only when I was doing a lot of research on slave ships that I got to the ventilator piece. So thinking about the ethical and moral side of this, so what are the implications of all of these practices? I mean, I think there's a lot of implications. I mean, one, I want to I want to say two things. I mean, one is that it's not really until the mid-20th century that we begin to have what some would refer to as a robust discussion about medical ethics and patient civil rights, patients' rights, and all of these new ways of making sure that patients are protected when they walk into a doctor's office. Um, so that's a relatively recent phenomenon. Then you go back to the ancient Greece, or and there's this sort of Hippocratic oath, which is doctors shouldn't create, you know, produce harm. Um, and then there is some place in between. And I, I guess what I would say is that there's two things. One is the point of the book is that how did something like slavery where people didn't care at all about enslaved people's humanity, bodily integrity, feelings, health, wealth, how did they exploit the way in which slavery made available populations of people to be studied. So lots of historians from Harriet Washington to Deirdre Cooper Owens to others have said, well, okay, uh, like let's look at Deirdre Cooper Owens' work on uh, gynecology. So there's work that shows that uh, J. Marion Sims often sort of recognized the father of gynecology experiments on enslaved African women's bodies as a way of figuring out different uh, surgical, surgical techniques. Well, he's able to do this because they're available. That's what happens in the South when he gets to the North. And this is the second part of, of Deirdre's book, which most people overlook. And she always kind of like pushes people not to overlook it, which is the fact that he does the same thing to Irish women in the North. So it's these populations that are sort of often the most subjugated that become the most available for study. So that's that's a you know raises lots of ethical questions lots of concerns that's happening in my book but i'm less interested in the individual notion of experimentation because lots of other historians have done it i'm more interested in the question of how does the plantation in jamaica which is a part a major chapter in the book all of a sudden become a laboratory in which mm-hmm. a doctor can study the spread of disease across a population. That is to say, think about it. In 1801 or 1742 or 1625, a doctor may have only seen one or two cases of smallpox or 10 cases of smallpox throughout their career or or five cases of cholera. And those were not always concentrated. They may not have seen them all at the same time, not all in the same day. They may have taken copious notes, but they might not remember what they saw when they treated a patient one time here, one time there. All of a sudden, when you have an entire population of people in 1850 in a plantation suffering from cholera, those symptoms become really visible. The pathology of that disease becomes really visible. How you treat it, how you prevent it becomes really really apparent. And so the, the plantation becomes this opportunity 
for doctors to train themselves in understanding how a disease moves across a population rather than just a pop up here or a pop up there. Or in the case of like major epidemics, like when plague swept through Europe or something like that, well, the doctor then is caught up in the drama and the chaos of the epidemic. Colonialism literally lifts these physicians up off the ground gives them a bird's eye view and allows them to see the spread of infection. So take, for example, cholera in the Caribbean. It's getting reported back that the, to the Metropole in England, well, in, in London, okay, look, we're getting lots of cholera. So they take a doctor who's had experience overseas in um, the Ottoman Empire and other parts of the world, a guy by the name of Gavin Milroy, he's a central character in the book, and he arrives in Jamaica. Now he has the ability to collect reports from doctors all over Jamaica. So in very in Kingston and in different places, he's able to say, tell me what's happening in terms of cholera. Uh, what are the symptoms? How are you preventing it? How many people? Is it a particular time of year, particular time of day, whatever? Then he has those reports. Then he can write to doctors in uh, in Cuba. He can write to doctors in St. Thomas, in other parts of the British, French, um, and Spanish Caribbean, and he can collect all of those reports. He now has a bird's eye view of seeing how it's playing out in all of these different places. Military, The military bureaucracy has given him an aerial view of the epidemic, and so he can start studying it. Doctors in the past, yes, they had small organizations here or there, but but imperialism provides them with the military power to begin this process of collecting information, synthesizing the information, making sense of the information to, and let's return back to our definition of epidemiology, to understand the spread of disease across a population and to figure out the most effective ways of controlling and preventing it. And so when someone like Gavin Milroy finishes his study of cholera and sends it to the British crown, he's got all of these questions as a curious, smart doctor. And he, along with other doctors who were deployed throughout the empire, and this is like the boom drum roll moment, they go back to London and they form their own society called the Epidemiological Society. So this is the first time that term gets used. So it's based on their work in throughout the empire of trying to understand how disease spreads among these subjugated populations that they develop new theories and they submit it, their their reports back to the crown who you know assesses the situation and tries to figure out the best thing to do but then as curious individuals and as medical as what they would refer to themselves as medical men they understand that there's this is the beginning of a new way of thinking about medicine this is a, a new way of thinking about what we would call scientific medicine and so they actually have an organization called an ep- the epidemiological society and because the empire has deployed physicians in all parts of the world, in India, in other parts of Asia, in West Africa, in East Africa, in North Africa, in Caribbean. All of these doctors, after they return from their journeys, they now become imbued with this type of medical authority and this type of, which is 
couched in this expertise of being people who can understand epidemics. And so the field of epidemiology begins with them. Now, here's here's the most important part, and this goes back to my early training with Farrier Griffin and other people that I learned from as a young undergraduate. That's the top-down story. That's the story of, you could say, all right, Downs, well, that's just the story that we kind of already know in some way that doctors were the leading people in creating new innovations in medicine. So you're showing epidemiology, but this sounds familiar in terms of what we know in other places, in other times, in other forms of medicine. However, my intervention is to say, who were these populations? And this is the, these were enslaved populations. These were colonized populations. This is not only an effort to do what medical anthropologists say, which is to place patients first, but it's to be able to say something else more profound. And that is this knowledge develops as a direct result of enslavement, as a direct result of colonization, as a direct result of war. And so when we think about the creation of epidemiology, it's not just about these doctors being deployed throughout the empire, learning about different things. It's about the connections they had to these enslaved and colonized populations and how that then leads to knowledge production. And what I play out on my book is the fact that there are many cases where these doctors may be the people who are reporting on the disease and they may be the authors of these new theories, but they're learning from enslaved people they're learning from colonized people. They're getting um, their material in that way. I mean, I have a chapter on Cape Verde where I have one of these European British doctors who spent who sent to the west coast of Africa to Cape Verde to understand the spread of a yellow fever. But how does he learn about incubation, the incubation period? How does he learn about the pathology of yellow fever? He learns about it from the women of color who on the island are the washerwomen who are closest to the garments and to the clothing that could, that they actually think are the vectors that are infected, that are, let me rephrase, reframe that. They actually think that they are, because they're close proximity to the linens, which they actually think is the cause and the source of what's actually spreading the epidemic, they interview them. Well, guess what? These washerwomen never anticipated that some British official would come months later after an epidemic blew up and ask them about the pathology of yellow fever or the incubation period or how long it took someone to die. And yet they had all of that knowledge available. The knowledge eventually gets codified within a report it then is stored in the Welcome Institute. It then becomes part of a larger debate in London, but they become central to that form of knowledge production. So it's not just saying epidemiology is a result of empire slavery and war, but it's also about the knowledge that is actually is made that's being made is coming from those populations. So how did epidemiology evolve to what we see nowadays? Um, I, that's another book. Um, I stopped in 1860. <laughs> I stopped in 1866 uh, purposely. I purposely stopped in 1866 for two reasons. Uh, one, there's something called the International Sanitary Commission. So by the mid-19th century, you have the rise of 
uh, something called international sanitary commissions. They're meetings, they're conferences that bring together mostly people in Europe. Um, and, and these are European officials who have um, post and empires throughout Asia and other parts of the world. And they bring them together to say things like, all right, does quarantine work? Does it not work? Is cholera contagious? Is plague contagious? And this is what I wanted to do is to sort of show how the epidemiologists are now working towards the creation of a brand new global medical enterprise that in many ways predates WHO, the World Health Organization. And I also wanted to show how all of this activity is happening before the major turning point in the history of medicine, which is the rise of microbiology and germ theory, um, the uh, discovery of bacteria in the late 19th century. So, you know, in order to answer the question of like, well, how did epidemiology change to where it is today? You would have to then grapple with what happens in the mid 19th century then research more what's happening in the 20th century. I would say that, so I I wanted to sort of stop in 1866 because I didn't want to write a 550 page book I, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, and then I wanted to really emphasize this period, 1755 to 1866, before the advent of, of bacteria, but at the same time with the creation of a global organization devoted to the study of medicine. I would say just off the cuff, look, the the idea of what is considered an epidemic has become much more expansive than the ways in which the founding generation of epidemiologists would have imagined it. I mean, they understood as epidemiology as um, focusing primarily and mostly exclusively on infectious disease. Today, we hear things like the opioid epidemic. Um, we hear things like the obesity epidemic. Uh, former first lady in the United States, Michelle Obama, talked about you know the malnutrition as a sort of epidemic. So you know the the notion of uh, epidemics has become much more capacious, and so that's one of the major transformations. And 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 my my sort of reasoning for that, I mean, if I had to like theorize about why I think that happens is because um, once you're able to sort of give something this sort of framing as an epidemic, it gains a little bit more mobilization, momentum and awareness among people to actually pay attention to it. So what lessons can we and should we learn from all of this? I mean, I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from it. Um, I think the most important lesson to learn from it is that all of the tools that we're dealing with today, not all, but most of the tools that we're dealing with today to combat COVID-19 originated um, as a result of the international slave trade. I mean, sorry, the transatlantic slave trade from colonialism, from empire, so that all of the things that we're thinking about, contact tracing, uh, data collection, uh, surveillance, all of the ways that we try to monitor the spread of COVID, all of those tools uh, originated as part of imperial endeavors in the mid-19th century. The second thing I would say is, and this is maybe odd, and maybe some epidemiologists will hear and it goes screaming into the night, um, but... Uh, <laughs> I think it's a lot about p- 
patient-centered approach to medicine. And one of the things I think about is like, you could say, all right, well, intellectually or academically, I buy that. Like we should have a patient-centered approach. What does that mean beyond just a sort of recognition that patient voices and patient experience matters? I think what it means for me is that when I uh, contracted COVID in mid-March of 2020, uh, I didn't have any of the symptoms that were reported. Um, headache, uh, GI infection, dizziness, fatigue. I was a little tired, but I was also jet lag. I'd just flown from New York to um, LA and back. So I was like, I don't think I have it. And then about three or four days later, uh, a friend of mine uh, from Los Angeles said, oh, I just saw you know, on television that they're now reporting that the loss of sense of taste and smell is part of, you know, the pathology of COVID. Well, the question is like, now we know that that's part of the symptoms and we, it's actually something that's checked off to see if you test positive for COVID. Well, the question is like, well, where did that come from? That didn't come from a doctor in a lab. That didn't come from Fauci. That came from patients telling doctors well, I've noticed that this is one of my symptoms and not and not dismissing it as allergies are not important. And then doctors saying, oh yeah, it does matter. Let's think about this. And then ultimately that knowledge then transmitted to larger officials who do statistical work on figuring out how many people have it until they determine this is in fact, you know, a hallmark of the of the virus. But that came from patients reporting, you know. And so I think that when we talk about a patient-centered medicine, uh, we need to think about how patients are helping to produce medical and scientific knowledge. And there's lots of ways that it happened, um, obviously, during the HIV AIDS epidemic with gay men and lesbians and queer people looking for cures and becoming experts to combat the epidemic at ham. But it's but it's happening on enslaved plantations. It's happening in uh, colonial regimes where these people are actually figuring out how best to protect themselves against cholera or smallpox. And then it gets reported to the military and medical officials and then becomes codified as part of the policy or part of the approach. But often the genesis of the idea is happening on the ground. Now, of course, not always, not exclusively, but I think one of the lessons we can learn is to sort of pay more attention to what patients are saying and pay more attention to how various populations that are not necessarily considered to be contributors to knowledge production are in fact integral to the way that we understand medicine and science. Mm, Absolutely, yeah. So what discoveries in your research for your book, Maladies of Empire, surprised you the most? Um, I would say the biggest one is is one I kind of already alluded to, uh, and that is the the one on Cape Verde. Well, there is the one on oxygen, too. There's actually like surprising number of shocks in the book. But the one on Cape Verde was really fascinating because I, I got to the Welcome Institute in London and... I went into the rare books room and what you do is you look through these finding aids, which look like telephone books and you select what documents you want them, you want to read and you fill out, write them down on pieces of paper and they go and 
fetch them for you and normally come back in a couple hours. So I was jet lagged and I really wanted to go to the cafe and get like a latte and a piece of cake and kind of chill, maybe check Facebook, who know. And instead I decided to kind of roam around their, their stacks and their open stacks, which looks like just like a library. And I picked up this book and I opened it and it was a pamphlet and it was um, a recorded interviews of all of these people um, that lived in Cape Verde. And I kept looking at it and I was like, this is, it says eight, the 1840s. I think it was the 1848 report. And I just kept saying, oh, this can't be true. This can't be true. And uh, I went back and I realized it was true. It was true that a doctor, uh, McWilliam had been deployed by the British crown to go to Cape Verde to uncover whether or not yellow fever was spreading as a result of a British trip that had gone to Sierra Leone to police the West coast of Africa for any sign of the illegal slave trade. And while the ship was on its way back from Sierra Leone to Cape Verde, it got infected with uh, smallpox, I mean, um, fever, yellow fever. And they didn't know if it was like, you know, possibly spreading it or how it was. They didn't realize yet at the time that mosquitoes spread yellow fever. So it was like all these questions. And so then it leads to a huge debate in London um, about quarantine and how long should they quarantine the ship and what is it ethical to quarantine the ship. And so he sends this doctor to Cape Verde and he, this guy, John McWilliams begins this massive systematic, uh, effort to interview everyone on the island about everything they know and what he does is he captures the testimony of the large of enslaved and uh, colonized people it is from my estimates and i would love to be proven wrong but uh the biggest inventory that we have of 19th century people of color talking about disease and so that in of itself is it was a huge shock because typically the voices of people of color are not recorded and transcribed in this like encyclopedic type of book and so that was a complete shock uh, for me and many of us after reading this book uh, would be confronted with uh, quite a lot of uncomfortable reality really so what is the best way for us to really respectfully acknowledge perhaps this kind of history that we uncover? Um, I think it's, uh, I think it's just what you said. I think it's just to be, I think it's to do both things. I think it's to basically acknowledge and to sort of think about all of the ways in which science and medicine developed as a result of these social transformations and to realize all of the people suffering death and sickness that helped to contribute to medical knowledge. Is there a, a place and time in history that you would really love to visit? And what kind of medicines do you think you would take with oh my you? God, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. I've done enough. I think, I think, listen, I, you should probably talk to my primary care doctor. I, I think like I already have like a ton of, uh, paranoia hypochondria like from today i the last thing i want to do is go back to a time where there's no indoor plumbing um yeah so i'm not <laughs> i i mean i do think that i think that all the time every time I, you know i think wow isn't it great that we have like 
water and showers and like i don't want to go back to a period where you run outside to have to relieve yourself um so there's nothing about that that's interesting to me um so i'm sorry (laughs) yeah or no dear right i mean like there's nothing i mean look no uh and you know i'm I'm good i just i'm good (laughs) (laughs) fair enough Well, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next book? Yeah, so I'm doing a uh, a bigger project right now that sort of examines the origins of public health in the United States and begins in Louisiana and it follows a cholera, the cholera pandemic, which is the sort of source of my, the ending of my last book of 1866. And it sort of follows that from... Louisiana through to Native American reservations and other parts of the West. Um, and I'm really interested in this question of what I've talked about a little bit today, which is how public health as a field develops less of a, you know, a legal history of public health and more of the sort of how it develops as an actual um, facet of, of, of medicine and science. And I'm going to be working on that next year. Beginning, I'm I'm working on it. I have been working on it, but in full swing um, in the fall, I'm going to the um, Hutchins Center for African and African American Studies at Harvard, where I'll have a a wonderful fellowship year to devote my time to that. Oh, that sounds super exciting. Yes. So what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Um, I would say on my book, uh, you can easily find it at the Harvard University um, webpage, the Harvard University Press, um, Melodies of Empire, wherever you buy your books, any platform that sells books, my book is available there. Um, you can follow me on Twitter to learn more about my research or articles or to connect with a broader network of people interested in history of medicine. I'm at Jim Downs One, and uh, I think that's it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.